If you have a copy of the bulletin, if you'll look there, I printed the 23rd Psalm in the familiar King James. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let us worship God with our gifts. Our Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the good gifts which you have given unto us. Every good and perfect gift comes from your gracious hand. We praise you for that which you have allowed us to use and pray that this which we bring back and give through this church may be guided by your Holy Spirit to bring honor and glory to the name of Jesus Christ and help to many people. We pray now that you will make the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts to be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Ago at uh, one of our meetings, I quoted um, something that had appeared originally in New Yorker magazine, which was an amazing account of uh, five men who had spent 80 days in space. They were in a cylinder-like space capsule, and for 80 days they were there, and then when they came back to the planet Earth, and were being interviewed and relating their experiences, they, they told the ordeal of going through 80 days of weightlessness. These are some of the difficulties that they found to try them in the sorest manner. Uh, in the first place, in order to sleep, most of us can't sleep standing up. Uh, we want to lie down to sleep. But when they slept, they had to be tethered uh, to the wall, or they would go floating off. Not only that, but their blankets had to be tethered to them, or the blankets floated off as well. Um, they, that when they opened a shaving kit, for instance, that all of the things in the shaving kit would go floating out of it. Uh, one of the greatest tricks that they had to uh, accomplish was to try to eat uh, because of food. If they took a, um, a fork full of potatoes, they had to chase the potatoes with the fork or, or they would separate and begin to float. And if someone asked a question and they had been aiming it toward their face and they turned to answer the question, they got plastered in the face uh, with uh, whatever they were eating. Um, so this bothered them. If they were trying to tighten a screw, 
they would often find out that the screw would not be tightened, but their bodies would be turning. And uh, when they went through a 24-hour period, they went through some 16 sunrises and 16 sunsets in 24 hours. Uh, they couldn't take a bath because it would float out of any kind of vessel that it was placed in. And it would float in globules. They couldn't take a shower because water wouldn't fall down. So they had to take uh, cloths that were pre-dampened and make do with that. Um, when they got back and were being interviewed, one man sub summed it up by saying that it was just a terrible experience, that there was no what is called local vertical. Uh, they couldn't, they didn't know literally which end was up. It was hard to do things. Well, we live in a day that's very much like that, where moral standards that have been landmarks for all of history are floating around, and people are greatly confused. The identity between men and women has become a terribly confusing thing. Um, uh, we have seen moral standards shaken out of place, and it's so refreshing to go back and find some limits and find some landmarks uh, that can lend some sense of security and stability to life and bring a blessing to us. I was thinking of this 23rd Psalm, uh, and I can remember times in my life when I was going through, faced with a big heart operation up at Mayo's or had a stroke in London or uh, some terrible thing had happened to me, the death of someone close. You know, you have a lot of profound things that you think about when you have the leisure to be profound, but there are times when those things just don't come back. But here are words that we may have memorized before we learn to read, and they come back to our minds. I can remember once being in Vietnam, uh, staying in a special forces hamlet, and as the bombs were, uh, as the artillery was firing, and uh, the, there was a lamp by the bed where I was sleeping that was shaking every time a big gun would go off. And I was so tired from having traveled a great distance and gone from place to place that I wasn't as worried about um, being killed as you might think. Uh, I was just too tired to give much thought to it. And uh, I wanted to go to sleep and I tried to think of the things that I ought to pray about. And that little prayer that I'd learned at my mother's knee, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. This I ask for Jesus' sake. That came back to my mind, and I found myself praying that. I didn't learn it in seminary. Uh, but it helped me out a lot right then. And I saw on a wall uh, in one room where I was, uh, something of the 23rd Psalm. The reason saying these things is that uh, when queen, uh, that no matter where you're kings or queens or philosophers, you go back to something uh, that's so good as this. When 1947, after the 
horrors of World War II when Queen Elizabeth um, uh, Carnation was to, well, in 1947, she was getting married. And at her marriage ceremony, they used uh, the Scottish uh, tune Crimin to the 23rd Psalm. Uh, and it was sung at her wedding. The afternoon before the wedding at the rehearsal, she had not liked the music which was to be in Westminster Abbey, and she didn't like the version of the 23rd Psalm that was being sung because it was not quite what they had sung in Scotland. And they had rung Westminster Abbey and had gotten uh, Canon Elliot, who was the uh, person in charge there, to come. And uh, they, he came over to Buckingham Palace and they rehearsed it and then changed it the next day because this meant much uh, to her and to her sister and to her mother. Uh, then you can go from a stately Queen Elizabeth with her royalty. Uh, to a dissolute person like Sir John Falstaff in Shakespeare's play. Uh, when he dies, uh, Mistress uh, Quickly uh, says that, uh, in her British way of saying it, he babbled of green fields and water. And Shakespearean scholars think that Sir John Falstaff, uh, even in the extremity of death, was saying a part of the 23rd Psalm. And uh, I'm saying these things to tell you that there is something tremendous about this beautiful Psalm, this piece of scripture that has made it identify with kings and princes and children and philosophers and has brought it all the way down through history to you and to me today why does it speak to us in the way in which it speaks to us? Uh, take your copy that's there in the bulletin and um, look at it together. One of the things that I read about it said a ramble through the 23rd Psalm, and that's about what this is going to be, a ramble through the 23rd Psalm. By the way, this book by Keller, if some of you would like this, I have some extra copies of it, is um, a good book to, um, to study it with, although there are many. There must be, I don't know, there must just be numerous books on the 23rd Psalm. Um, Norman Dunning, who is a man that I heard lecture once on this, said that it was important first to remember the geography of the 23rd Psalm. Now, if you think about the geography of the 23rd Psalm, you might think about landscapes, but what he was talking about is that the 23rd Psalm comes uh, right after the 22nd Psalm and just before the 24th Psalm. Uh, the 22nd Psalm has words that we think came from the New Testament because those words of Christ on the cross, my God, my God, hast thou forsaken me, come from there. That speaks to us of Calvary. And uh, that's the only way that we will ever come to say, the Lord is my shepherd. It's when we have come to faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us on the cross that we can really say that. Then if you skip over to the 24th Psalm, we read about the king of glory uh, in his majesty. And that tells us that one day Jesus will come again in great power and glory. And uh, this brings comfort to our hearts. But the 23rd tells us about our immediate journey with the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. 
the figure of a shepherd king is uh, one that was uh, much uh, sought after uh, by the uh, people in this part of the world. Uh, a shepherd was one who had that responsibility over the sheep. And the sheep are not uh, fluffy, gorgeous little animals on a green slope on a hillside, uh, so you like to think of them. Those of us who come from Texas, and uh, Texas produces more sheep than any state in the uh, United States, but Texas cattle people and Texas sheep people don't get along very well. And they don't because sheep are notoriously non-ecological. Uh, they are definitely not the, the symbol of the Sierra Club. Uh, sheep have no sense of uh, what they're doing uh, to grass when they begin to eat it. They nibble at a tuft of grass and it tastes good. But they're not like a cow who is much smarter. A cow stops and leaves some grass. It's got a lot more sense. And the cow can come back and eat again and you can you put a lot of cattle on a pasture and uh, parcel them out and they'll do all right. But sheep will eat right on down to the very roots of the grass and then keep eating until they eat up the roots. And they're just little wedges of destruction when they go through. You have to watch them because they're very dumb and the Bible compliment us greatly when it calls us sheep. And it's important for us to remember that. Uh, because many of us find ourselves in situations where we realize uh, that we've done something dumb. And we wonder if the Lord will forgive us and if he loves us like a shepherd is supposed to love his sheep and care for them, and he does, then that makes a difference. Well, what does he do? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The reason I shall not want is that he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He is the one who seeks out um, the provision which I need. He seeks it out for me. He leads me beside the still waters. In the land where this shepherd was, uh, water was a day-by-day -day necessity that he needed in order to live. And he leads me beside the still waters. Sheep are notoriously nervous animals. And they are timid, they are dumb. And uh, so they were afraid of rushing water, and this shepherd would put them still waters. Then we come in verse 3 to the metaphor, he restoreth my soul. I'm so glad that this is here. It gives me a lot of comfort to know that God will provide for my needs, for my physical needs, that I might be fed and that I might have water for my thirsty soul, uh, thirsty body. But what about my soul? He restores my soul. Uh, this word carries with it some intimation of reconciliation and forgiveness and communication and fellowship and identity and endorsement and affirmation. These are all things that we look for in other people. We have a huge desire to be liked. We want other people to like us. One of the first signs of a deteriorating mental health is when a person cannot give or receive love comfortably. The mental health people tell us that troublesome people are people in trouble. When it is cold enough to say to someone else, I don't need you or I don't care about you, that person inflicts a greater punishment 
on themselves than they realize when they do such a, a thing as that. We need each other. And restoration here carries a note of affirmation with it. We need to be affirmed that I may be dumb and have eaten too much of the grass that the Lord has put there for me. I may have wandered where I should not have gone, but that he would restore me, that's a great thing. That he would take me back and forgive me, that's a blessed thing. I remember one night, years and years ago, when I had been asked to, when I had conducted a service at Appalachian Hall in Asheville, a psychiatric hospital, and uh, I came home, and when I got back to Montreat, this was many years ago, and there's no way anyone could identify this. I got a telephone call from a doctor who lived in Biltmore Forest in Asheville, one of the wealthy sections of Asheville. And he called me and said, uh, I was driving to my, I was out walking, and I saw a man in a big car who is a friend of mine, and it was evident that he was, had been drinking. He was about to run into something and he stopped me and we talked. He said that he had walked through the lobby of the hospital at Appalachian Hall tonight and had heard some minister speaking. And he said, I'm depressed and I think I'll go home and blow my brains out. And he said, would you go see that man? And I said, yes, if you can get him to call me and ask me to come, I'll come at his request. In a little while, the phone rang, and the man did call me. And I went back over there at night into a very huge, enormous estate. A male nurse met me at the, at the door of the house and ushered me into an enormous a bedroom and here was a man who was seated on the side of his bed he had a 45 automatic and he had told me that he wanted to take it and destroy himself and I said why and he said because all my life all my life is put in a whiskey bottle and I'm sick of it I would like to live outside of a whiskey bottle. I don't want to live this way anymore. And he said, I heard the singing in the service there tonight. And I wondered if there was any hope for me. And we talked and we read scripture together. And then I knelt and prayed with him. Years later, I saw him and he no longer was drinking. He would remember me at Christmas by sending uh, some gift or sending some letter of thanks. But the thing that I was the most thankful for was that the message of the grace of God that he would restore his soul had somehow gotten through to his heart and made him know that God would give him another chance in life and that God would speak to him and make him to know his love. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. There's that stability that we need, a sense of right 
and a sense of wrong, and those are words that have no meaning apart from God. You cannot get meaning from just contemporary situations for right and wrong. God makes the difference there. And he does this for his name's sake. He gives us the dignity of bearing the honor of his name. And when we live for his honor, that makes the big difference. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I heard some commentator this week who said it was important to remember that death is here figured as only a shadow and that none of us had to be afraid of shadows. Now that doesn't really comfort me a great deal. If I look in back of me and I see the shadow of someone with a stick about to hit me over the head, I think that there might be some reality to that shadow and I just might move. It does bother me when I hear noises out in the bushes because something's out there. If I knew what it was, I could feel better about it, I think. Uh, if it happens to be something bad, I've got a problem. But this tells me that God is with me. And that means that when someone goes through the experience that the family, the Shewitt family has passed through this week, and when Henry himself was faced with that, that the very fact that God is with us means that the king of terrors can have something of his terror taken away. So I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. He promised that he would be with us, and that's what makes the big difference, his presence with us. Uh, John McNeil, who was one of the great preachers of this psalm in Scotland, used to say that he worked in Glasgow, and when he would come home, he would get off the streetcar as far as it went, and then have to walk the rest of the distance in a, uh, a very dark area that was quite dangerous in Glasgow. His mother, who would understand the feelings of her son and know that he would be worried, used to send his father to meet him. And he said, when I got to the end of the uh, streetcar line, the tramway, and I got off, I could be afraid, for I was young and I knew the dangers that were there, and especially on a Saturday night. But then I would hear my father's voice say, Johnny, is that you? And he said the fact that he was with me took away the fear. And what the psalmist is telling us here is that God is with us. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The rod is a, a, like a club or a weapon which would be used by the shepherd to defend his flock. The staff would be used to rescue them. Uh, and then the verse 5 usually gets a lot of attention from the people who like to uh, debate this psalm. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. This is saying that uh, David, the shepherd king, really gets a lot of enjoyment out of not only being able to be fed by God, but if he can be fed in the presence of some of his horrid enemies, it gives him a little more delight. Well, there are people who object to that interpretation. I really don't think it's so bad. It means it's vindicated, I think. 
vindicated in the presence of maybe some fear, maybe alcohol overcome in the life of a man such as I spoke of a while ago. It would give me a great deal of pleasure if I were a person and had victory over that thing to be able to say to someone else, no, thank you. I don't need that drink. I don't need any drink. That would be a victory. And that would be in the presence of an enemy that assaulted me. Thou anointest my head with oil. Uh, this is more than just a perfumed oil to make us smell more fragrant. This would mean that the shepherd had checked the animal and uh, had placed something there that had a healing power about it and could uh, keep him from disease and from destruction. Well, when he adds all of this up, he comes to the great conclusion, my cup runneth over. Everything that he needs has been supplied, that God is with him. When I think, think of a missionary who went to the island of Patagonia, and that man was dying of thirst. He was crippled and injured far from home in a savage territory, and they found his diary after his death. He told of being so feeble and weak that he could not move, having gone without food or water. And then he told of a rain that had come and had drenched the sails of the boat uh, which he was trying to find refuge under. And he, by taking a piece of the canvas and chewing on it and sucking the moisture from that canvas, had been able to allay an almost unbearable thirst. And he had written this in his diary, which was found with his dead body later. You know what the last words that he wrote in that diary was? And that man's name was Alan Gardner. He said, I am overwhelmed at the goodness of God. We learn to be thankful. We learn to be thankful knowing that God is with us. Goodness and mercy. One of my old teachers used to say that goodness and mercy, he thought, were the two guardian angels that God had assigned to look after him. And that one day when he got to heaven, he would be able to meet goodness and mercy knowing that they had followed him all of the days of his life, followed him to do him good, not to do him harm, but to bring good to him. And then the grand conclusion to it, that I will dwell in the house of the Lord, dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Isn't that a wonderful thought, to be forever with the Lord? the one who is with us in the way he is identified to us here is the Savior from Calvary and the one who will come again and the one who meets the deepest, deepest needs of our souls and who will be with us forever. These are some old truths that can bring to our minds and to our hearts stability in a life that's confused about its values and about its whole purpose in living. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, some of us have been faced with sad things this week. Some of us may face difficulties in the week that lie ahead. 
but it's a grand comfort to us to know that saints all down through the ages have found deep blessing from such assurance as we have read this morning from this blessed psalm. We thank you for it. And we pray that you will help us not simply to know the words of the psalm, but to know intimately this shepherd. We pray that we may know the Lord Jesus who has come to us as the good shepherd and who is the great shepherd of the sheep and who has given his life for us. Help us to know his voice speaking to us in the midst of trial and tribulation. Help us to know his voice in leading us when things are good and we feel secure and well comforted. Help us to know his voice and to discern it in the decisions that we have to make day by day. Help us to know and love and faithfully follow our shepherd. In his name we pray. Amen.